Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is special guest, Philip Rakowski. Hey, it's great to be here. Welcome to the show. I am by myself as far as panelists is concerned, but I'm sure we're going to have plenty to talk about today. Yeah, I think so, too. Hey, folks, do you love keeping track of what's going on in the View community? Maybe you're a little overwhelmed with all the new stuff. Well, don't be. Come join us at View Remote Comp. View Remote Conf is going to be a three-day online conference. We're actually going to have a fourth day the day before where we watch our favorite videos from View conferences over the last year. We'll also have talks from our favorite guests from around the View community, as well as our panelists from the Views on View podcast. So if you're out there looking for great View content that'll help you stay current with your web development skills, then come check us out at viewremoteconf.com. That's viewremoteconf.com. So, Philip, would you mind introducing yourself, kind of tell your story of how you got into programming? Yeah, sure. So I'm 25 years old right now, and I'm a front-end developer working in e-commerce software house called Divante in Wrocław in Poland. By the way, Wrocław is, I think, the capital of, of BJS in Poland, and it's also the first city uh, that hosted the ViewConf, which had to be said. So I'm also a co-founder of ViewStorefront, which is a backend agnostic front-end for headless e-commerces. We'll talk a lot about, about this today, I think. And I also have set foundations for a view component library called Storefront UI, which was later maintained and further developed by my colleagues from Divanta and view community. One of them is Maya, which was recently our guest. So I started coding when I was 13 or even 12, something like that, and started earning money on it like three or four years later. So I started with what you see and what you get editors like Microsoft front page. And I think it was renamed to, to something else later. And around 18 or 19 years old, I started doing full-time freelancing with mostly WordPress and WooCommerce. And at some point after a few, few years, it felt very repetitive. So I started to look for some full-time job in a company that matches more or less my interests. And this is how I joined Divante, which is a company that I'm working at right now. So I actually worked at only one company in my whole career. Yeah, and that would be it, how I stepped into the programming. So I started very early and I really enjoyed like hacking on things. And I think I started with C++, then did a little bit with PHP, but you know, at that age, it, was, it wasn't very advanced stuff. And then stepped into web development, which is like saying web development is a lot to, if you compare it to what I've been doing, because I've mostly been doing CSS and HTML. And the serious web development, I think, started when I joined Ivanta, because previously I was mostly focusing on tools that, that were making me productive. I was also doing UX and UI for that. So I was more like a designer with technical skills than a developer. And when I joined Ivante, I started to focus on the technical side. I think it sounds like we have a, a very similar past. I also started around when I was 12 years old. The difference being I wasn't smart enough to move it into freelancing as quickly as you did. I, I just created a community site and maintained it all myself without any uh, income from it. Community site for, for what? It was, it was a website based around a YouTube channel. And it was just nice. for, the, for the community to come talk about everything. Uh, nice. That run- I, I think it was. I actually just put up a blog post on my blog about it recently. Looking back at the, the stat counter that I had on there, we had in 2007, there were, uh, I think, 30,000 page loads. Whoa. So it was, so it was pretty huge. good. Yeah, this is a huge success. When I was... Young, my biggest accomplishment was, I think, making a website about cats. And I received some emails about that. So I was very excited. And like one or two years later, I discovered that all these emails were were actually from my mom. (laughs) So so if you compare me to yourself, I think you were very, very successful. Well, thank you. So you said you got into a more serious freelance, or not freelance, more serious front end later in your career, what got you into Vue specifically? So to understand this, I think I think I must give a little bit of background what happened when I joined Divante. So I joined Divante because I was a little bit bored of doing WooCommerce because it's not that much of coding in there, especially 
if you consider like stuff like DV or other visual editing tools for WordPress. So I decided that I want to become a professional programmer and coding is something that gives me joy. So I joined Divante and I joined the first projects in Divante that were on Magento, which is an e-commerce platform. And whoa, that wasn't what I was expecting, to be honest. So the developer experience was extremely painful for the front-end developer because most of the e-commerce platform, I think still, focuses mostly on back-end developer experience. So if you're a front-end developer, you still need to deal with PHP and you're very lucky if you have to deal with stuff like jQuery. You rarely hear about, you rarely work and don't even hear about front-end frameworks like BJS, Angular, or React. So I was a little bit disappointed at that time. So I, I told my boss about this and they moved me to a SaaS product within Divante, which was based on AngularJS. And this SaaS product was called Open Loyalty, which is a SaaS loyalty platform. And that was enjoyable. I learned a lot, but it, it was still not e-commerce. So I, I really wanted to do e-commerce because I really liked that. And together with my boss, Piotr, we actually... No, no, I think, I think it started even earlier. So at the beginning in Divanta, they had this idea of creating the headless storefront because I, I wasn't the only one that wasn't satisfied with developer experience of Magento uh, and other e-commerce platforms. So they started doing this uh, headless frontend on React, but it turned out to be too complicated framework for backend developers because like most of, as I said at the beginning, like most of the e-commerce developers have backend experience and backend background. And even if you're a front-end developer, you will specialize in, in backend sooner or later. So it's pretty hard for such people to transition into, into React.js. So we found this pretty hard to, to work with. And then I suggested that maybe we should pick Vue.js because that was a framework uh, that I really liked, even though it was almost three years ago, I think. So it was at the time of releasing version 2.0. So it was very, very early stage. And at that time, my boss tried to convince me to use Aurelia.js. So you could imagine what would happen if we picked this. But, I, but we decided to use Vue because it was very intuitive. It was very easy to, to learn. It was very easy to write in this. So I was a junior developer back then, and I had no problems in writing pretty complex solutions with it. My boss, Piotr, who was a backend developer, also grabbed it like within one or two days. So we started doing this. We, we really like that. We really like how fast you can code with Vue. And I think that that's it. This is, this is how we start from start, started. Very nice. And I, th I think that's often a, a, a story that we hear a lot, that people were, were trying to find a good front-end framework and that, that Vue is just so easy to get started in. So match what you were hearing, what you were feeling at the time? Yes, exactly. And also, like, you know, after working with AngularJS, I really liked the two-way data binding in there. It was simplifying a lot of things that I didn't like in JavaScript. And Re React.js wasn't giving me that. And Vue.js felt to me like kind of an upgrade from AngularJS when React felt like a downgrade. So if you're, if you're a senior developer, I think you see much more value in React than a junior developer. And if you're a junior developer, you see much more value in, in a tool that actually lets you get things done without worrying about you know, the, the, the underlying complexity. So, 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 so I really liked Vue. We started writing, writing in this and we haven't stopped, which means that it, it proven itself. Right. Well, that's excellent. And so the, the tool that you built, is that what became Vue Storefront? Exactly. Cool. So we started three years ago. We started three years ago and we started as a simple boilerplate for headless e-commerces. But like a boilerplate that had a cap capability of being backend agnostic. So we had a front-end, but then we also had a middleware. I think it's, it's called anti-corruption layer, which means that we are actually, or like a gateway or something like this, we are collecting the, the data from different API endpoints, from different third-party services and transforming the data format to a common format that is accepted by vStorefront. So this middle layer is called vStorefront API, and vStorefront speaks to vStorefront API. 
and we store from the API has its own database in Elasticsearch. So the first thing we need to do is basically to index the data from a certain e-commerce platform and CMS to our Elasticsearch and then have it in synchronization. And then VStorefront is speaking to VStorefront API, which is taking the data from Elasticsearch. It might sound complicated, but basically that was a headless front end with a layer that was enabling us to, to, to become backend agnostic. So if in theory, if you will decide at some point that you don't want to use Magento, you're, you can switch the backend without making any change on the front end. And, and we saw that pe people really like that. So that was the approach that we had three years ago. And that was the approach that we were continuing until end of the last year, I think until December, when we decided that we need to move forward. And actually after three years of you know, creating a technical debt, because being honest, like at the beginning, we had no idea how to write vCodes because there was me, a junior developer, and my boss, who is originally a backend developer. He's a great programmer. He's one of the smartest people I know, but he had no idea how to write proper front-end code. And after three years of you know collecting technical debt, but also improving what we have and having more than 100, 120 live websites, we really knew like what were the pain points and what we want to change. So after three years, we decided that it's time to do a rewrite. And we did a rewrite and we called it Vistor from Next and it's still in the making, even though it's, it's beta now and it's using Composition API. Okay. I'd love to dive into uh, View Storefront Next and see what you're doing there. Before we get there, because I, I watched the uh, video, and we'll make sure we include this in the, in the show notes. There's a video that you sent us uh, that explains the transition between View Storefront and View Storefront Next. So, but before we get there, just to make sure I understand, if I'm using Magento, for example, like you were saying, and I wanted to switch to something like Shopify or WooCommerce or one of those other platforms, that would be fairly painless. Is that correct? Well, it depends on, on your definition of painless. <laughs> but <if, laughs> that's fair. Like, overall, yeah. Yeah. Overall, yes, especially for the front-end development. So so as a front-end developer, like our goal was to make front-end developers unaware of the backend. So backend developers can focus on what they're doing best and front-end developers can focus on what they're doing best because what what was in, in the in the e-commerce landscape right until headless e-commerce was backend and front-end developers sharing the same code base and writing in the same files php and html and css and as you could imagine that wasn't the best possible approach Front-end developers was mad at back-end developers because they were obviously adding a little bit of HTML and CSS, and that was usually rubbish. Back-end developers were mad at front-end developers because obviously they were adding a little bit of PHP code, and it wasn't the best. That wasn't the best quality of code, so it wasn't productive and it wasn't leading to to a real quality. So. The biggest benefit of headless e-commerce, I think, is the fact that what we are comfortable with. So as a front-end developer, I'm comfortable with front-end tooling. I can work on this and I don't need actually to be aware of how backend is working and what is happening there. And the backend developer can also focus on what they're doing best and then just give me the data I need. So we have this very strict separation of concerns. And this is, this is pretty amazing to me. Yeah, that's that sounds awesome. It's the I mean, it's the same reason I like using something like Gridsome for my personal website. I'm able to just focus on the front end when I'm working on my blog, and I can just pull from whatever data source I need. And granted, like you said, there is some pain if you need to switch between them, but for the, from the front end perspective, everything stays nice and consistent, which is excellent. I really like yes, that. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I also at that time I also discovered some awesome tools like. Firebase or BAS, AAS. Back then, I, I think it's like it's an acronym from backend as a service, but that was actually a website, BAS.com. I'm not sure if it's still on, but I really, really love that idea of having a backend totally separated and actually making whole database and all the endpoints like in, in, in the visual UI. 
So as a front-end developer, I can focus only on the front-end experience and I don't need to care about back-end experiences at all. And I can even set up my back-end without knowing how it works. So that, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. So just a question. You, so you started working on this three years ago. And at this point, you have, you've acquired some technical debt. And you're you're re, re-evaluating how to move forward, which is what's leading to View Storefront next. What, what are some of those changes that are coming with View Storefront next? And, and maybe, maybe explain so that we understand why those changes solve the pain points. Like, like what's, what was the thinking behind it as well? This, I, wanna, mm-hmm. I, I know in the applications that I write, sometimes I'll, I'll write some code knowing that it's not exactly perfect. I'll see the pain points later and I'll, I'll reevaluate. I just want to see how you walked through that for some of the, the features that are coming in View Storefront next. Yeah, sure. So like uh, when you're building a software that is meant to be a framework, because that was our, our goal, to make something that is actually an e-commerce framework. So right now it's, it's pretty funny because actually we're e-commerce framework on top of Next.js, which is Vue.js framework. And Vue.js is a framework on top of JavaScript. So it's like a framework in a framework in a framework. But when you're building a framework, it's extremely hard to design a good APIs. And because you have no idea how people will use it and you, you need a lot of validation to actually make it right. So when we started doing this and we were one of the first ones to do this, it was obvious that we will make a lot of mistakes in designing this API. And the first mistake that we have made is when we were making it as a boilerplate, we haven't thought about this division between the code that is upgradable and, de- and delivered by us and the project code that is maintained by people that are actually using this storefront. So that was only a boilerplate that you are cloning from GitHub and you can work on it. So later we divided it into two parts. So there was a core part, which was upgradable and which, is you, should, which you shouldn't touch. And there was a team part, which is obviously like the project itself. But the problem is that the core part was exposing so many things because we had a mixing for every component. So when you have a card component, we had a mixing that was actually enabling all the card functionality. So the only thing that you need to do to have a working card is actually use this mixing and then write the UI. Then we had Vuke's on top of that, which was also a public API. We did server-side rendering by ourselves. We did the web configuration by ourselves. We did caching by ourselves. So we did everything by ourselves. And the, the biggest issue of that was that we had to maintain all of this. So we're open source project and we weren't earning any money out from it at that time. And we had so huge code base to maintain that it was really hard to move forward at some point. So that was the first issue that we wanted to solve. We wanted to use some third parties that will give us all the functionality that we already have, but we didn't want to, to worry about maintaining them. So that was the first issue. The second issue was this two-wide API surface that was really hard to maintain, and our community, community is great. They're very forgiving, but we actually were shipping breaking changes with every update. So every update was giving breaking changes because our API was designed in a way that was very close to implementation details. So how we were approaching some certain problem. And there were so many APIs enabling you to do the same thing, but in a different way. And you know, if, if we will change something, probably most of them will change. So that was the two biggest mistakes that we have made, doing everything by ourselves and not thinking about the public API from the day zero. And we solved that in Vistorefront Next and also added a lot of other functionalities that we found useful. For example, Vistorefront Next is fully, fully modular and it's basically a set of composition API functions. So you have a use product, composition API function that is meant to interact with products. You have use category, which is meant to use with categories. You have use content, which is basically meant to interact with CMS content from certain e-commerce platform, use checkout, et cetera, et cetera. And each of these functions is totally independent. So we can switch them. For example, you can use use checkout from your e-commerce platform, but use product and use category, which are meant to fetch and manage products and categories can be used from Algolia. And all of that could be easily combined in, a, in an application and work. And that was a 
that was a problem in Vistor Front 1 because what you had to do is actually you had to do a connector to our middleware to make it work. And so it was much more work. And the middleware itself was also a pain point for many developers because if you're building something that, that is targeting front-end developers, every Node.js work that they have to do or dealing with Elasticsearch, this is sometimes a deal breaker for them because they have no idea how to use it. So we also simplified the technology stack. Basically, most of the things that we have done were simplifying things and writing a proper abstraction so we can be sure that the, our API is not tied to implementation details so we have freedom to actually change it in the future and how, how we are doing this. So we are actually doing a few integrations of e-commerce platform at the same time against the same API. And we're, we're trying to identify if this API can handle all of these different ways of doing certain things and improving this API to do this. And I think right now, we are at the point where I can confidently say that we achieve what we want. Of course, there is still a lot to improve, but I'm very, very proud of the team. I'm very proud of the community and not, not being one very humble. I'm also really proud of myself that we did that because I really believe that, you know, what makes software sexy right now and what makes software great is developer experience. Developer experience is the king right now. So if you manage to deliver a proper developer experience to the users and proper developer experience is not only a simplicity, it's also backward compatibility, it's also lacking bugs, et cetera, et cetera. If you manage to do this, you will win. And in e-commerce industry, developer experience is so, so bad. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, I had, a, I had a client that was running a WordPress site and they were trying to import various e-commerce functions. And that was definitely not a pleasant experience to, to even do the little bit that I did with it. So I'm definitely with you there that the developer experience needs to be upfront in something like this to get it all working. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, maybe for backend developers, it's, it's okay, it's acceptable, but I'm not a backend developer. I don't care and I don't know even if it's good or bad. I just know that it's really painful for me. I mean, I would, I would imagine that it's, it's just as painful on both sides uh, from my minimal experience. Okay. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm actually excited about this and I want to go and set up an e-commerce store just so I can try out these new tools. You said that View Storefront Next is reliant on the composition API. I'm assuming that means it just works on View 3. Is that correct? So we haven't tested it yet with View 3 because we, we made a lot of choices at the beginning that actually made it really, really hard for us to, to test it in V3, but also made it overall really hard to us. So we started writing Vue I think in December and January or January of 2019 or 20. I don't remember exactly, but that was exactly the time where Composition APA plugin for Vue 2 came out. So we decided, okay, so we want to be compatible with uh, Composition APA and Vue 3 also. The tool is solving our problem because previously we were using mixing. It didn't work very well. And also before we thought about using scope slots, it was a little bit better, but still wasn't solving the problem that we had. And Composition API was, was a perfect solution. It wasn't production ready at all, but we really hope that at the time of finishing the storefront next, it will be production ready. And well, it's not. <laughs> because it was estimated to be production ready, I think, in March. And now we have July and it's still far from being ready. But at least it's stable. It's, 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 it's more or less stable right now. But we haven't tested it with you free because we're using Next. And the Next is not enabling you to, to test you free right now. I know that they're very close to it, to it because I'm in direct contact with Sebastian, uh, with Puya, actually with the whole Next.js team. They are very, very helpful. And we are, we are good friends. So when they will release Vue 3 with Next, we will test it and hopefully it will work. I'm pretty sure it will work because we really, really try to, you know, to not do any hacks for Vue 2, to do it like really Vue 3 way. But, you know, you, you can be sure. It's still better, you know, even if we we'll need to rewrite a little bit of code, it's still much better than basing everything on Options API, which wasn't a perfect choice for us. 
and then rewriting everything from scratch. The only issue that we are facing right now is we need to land some shops in production that are using actually Vue 2 plugin. But Vue 2 plugin for Composition API was surprisingly stable in terms of just a view code. In terms of like overall developer experience, I think it's extremely painful. I'm, I'm sorry to say that because it had numerous, numerous issues with instantiation, with monorepos. With monorepos, it's, 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 it's a total nightmare. So it turns out it doesn't work very well when you have a links within your application, symlinks. You need to, you need, usually you need to do an alias to a node modules of a hosting project. Basically a lot of workarounds that are not in any documentation, that are not in any issues. I spend a lot of time on Discord discussing with people that already use Composition API, trying to figure out my, the issues I have been facing. But a, another problem was making it work with server-side rendering. So at the, at the time our clients needed this. Next wasn't supporting server-side rendering for view free composition API at all. And we didn't want to use Vuex because we knew that, you know, with composition API, Vuex is actually obsolete for most of the use cases. At least this is, this is my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. So we had to implement our own server side rendering for Nuxt.js and composition API. And surprisingly, like, I'm not sure if it was influenced or not. I think it wasn't influenced by what, what we did. But the, the API that Nuxt.js came with recently, so use patch and, and stuff like that is very similar to what we have, which helped us a lot to migrate. So, you know, a lot of things that we had to think about and a lot of workarounds, workarounds that we had to make. But I, at the end of the day, I think it was worth it because I feel very confident with using Composition API right now. And I'm very proud that we'll be probably one of the first ones to release very, very big projects on Vue 3 once it's stable. So, you know, every, everything was a huge bet, but at the end of the day, I, I'm happy with it. Nice. And yeah, thinking about it, the Composition API makes perfect sense for an application like this, where you need to be able to pull in different functions depending on what your front end needs. And it can be fairly, like you said, agnostic to what the back end looks like as long as it's hitting the storefront UI or the, the view storefront. Yeah, the storefront UI, I'm mixing up the two libraries now, storefront UI uh, middleware. That makes perfect sense. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then... And the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. From, from your perspective as a developer, how do you feel about the Composition API compared to the Options API? Do you feel... Like it was a comfortable switch between the two? I think you, you could approach it in, from, from many angles. Like when you don't have a specific need of reu- reusing a lot of code across your application or shipping reusable code as a package, I think there's not that much of a difference, even though it really helps to organize your code better. But from, from the perspective of a developer that needs to do a lot of such things and Let's be honest, like most of the projects that are a little bit more complex that than like a simple block or to-do list needs to do this. It's a major, major step forward. And I absolutely love it. It helps me so much. Like it, it brings so enjoyable developer experience and it's so straightforward. It's it's such a good idea to you know to expose all the internals of view components, but outside of view components. So you can have it, this reactivity every anywhere you want. I really, really love that. And I think it will bring really amazing use cases to to the whole view ecosystem and also simplified a lot of things. Like previously I had to use many tools for what I was doing. Previously I was more or less tied to Nux, to uh, Vuex or Vuex. I'm not sure what is the right pronunciation. And right now the only thing I need to do is basically a composition API. Uh, The the only thing I, I need to use regarding Vue.js itself. 
Of course, you need to use all the other third-party tools, like for internationalization and stuff like that. But like the bare minimum for for a clean VJS application is Composition API, and that's all. And that's enough actually to to have a very clean architecture to write your own state management. It's it's really powerful. I di- didn't expect it to be to be such, so powerful. I haven't worked that much with Composition API in Vue three. And I think the developer experience is much better. I experienced some bugs in, in, in V2, but the concept itself, it's it's absolutely amazing and it, it's really smart. It's like React hooks, they were good. But combining this with view interactivity, reactivity, it's it's amazing. Seriously. Love it. That's really good to hear. I've only I've only played with it a little bit myself as Evan Yu's been releasing various versions of the the Vite tool. I've tried playing with that using the composition API as I can, but it didn't, considering I'm just building a small example application, it's never given its full power to me. So that's that's yeah. really good to hear on, on a, a library like yours that, or framework, sorry, like yours, that it really does provide that tremendous value that the Vue team was hoping for. Yes, definitely. By the way, you said you use Vite. What's your thoughts on it? I haven't got a chance to actually put my hands on it, I only read about it on Twitter, and it seems like also a huge, huge step forward in, in developer experience. I think from a developer experience perspective, it is amazing. Um, just starting up the, the development server takes less than a second. It, it still has to do some compiling as it brings in the ES modules, so it puts it all into the, the browser properly. But starting up the, the system itself is near instantaneous. Working with everything is as you would expect. But to kind of paraphrase what Evan, you said on uh, full stack radio, I believe, uh, or he was interviewed by Evan, mixing up names again, Adam Wathen. The, the benefit is if you're looking at a single page of your application, all that needed to be compiled was that single page because it's not running Webpack or anything in the background. It's just fetching the assets that you need for that page. And so as you navigate across your application, it might be pulling in more things, which for a developer experience is fine because developers are constantly working and constantly needing hot module refresh anyway. And then at the end of the day, when you're ready to deploy, you can run a production build that I think runs through Rollup. And it's perfectly built into an application that can just be deployed as you normally would a Vue CLI application. So yeah. I'm, I'm very happy with it. I, I need to try this. It seems like a very good idea, especially considering the fact that I'm, I'm a big fan of using a raw source of a library instead of compiled version. But the issue with raw source is that, well, the, the develop, development server setup could take a lot of time, like a lot, a lot. For Vue Storefront, we, we don't have that much code, but we're using raw source of most of the packages. Actually, we switched to ESM, so right now, just for the tree shaking, because using raw source was taking too much time. But for mm-hmm. Storefront UI, everything is in a raw source. And I think it's, it adds around like 20 seconds to the initial development server setup. And the rest is like seven seconds. So you could imagine if, if we would all ship a raw source code, like, like Mr. Larkin is advising, then you will be probably hitting your own death, then going to eat breakfast, and then coming back. And if your development server will die in the meantime, you can confidently go and take another meal. So, yeah, that seems, seems really cool. I need, I need to try this because this is one of my biggest pain points right now. And I haven't found a good way to, you know, to fix this. I, I read numerous articles on how to optimize Webpack the server. And I was unable to squeeze like maybe 10 or 15% of improvement. But, you know, if, if you have something that is bootstrapping for 30 seconds, it's not that much of an improvement. Right. Yeah, I definitely recommend checking out Vite then. It it feels very nice and very quick to start up. Awesome. I'll check that. Well, cool. So on the topic of View Storefront next, are there we've talked a little bit about some of the features. Is there any features that you would like to highlight uh, that are coming in that new next release? So regarding the the features specifically, we, we try to have at least of them as possible. What we wanted to focus on is to have a very, very clear and clean architecture 
that is actually enabling you to pick only what you need. So everything is reshakeable. And we try to put corresponding composition API functions in a way that is normally used within a page. So for example, when, when you have some functions that are depending on each other or are complementary, we try to use the functions that are usually used within the same page. When you, ha- when you have a category page, for example, you will probably use, use category, of course, and use product. So what we did is, is, we, is we tried to, to build it in a way that is complementary to itself and also that, that, that is enabling you to more or less use only one or two composition API functions within a page, which, make, which makes it pretty easy to do a tree shaking, to do a proper code splitting, etc. And we also tried to make everything overridable also in a performant way. So instead of overriding the code that you want to use and keeping the dead code in, in, inside your code base, in your bundle, we managed to uh, actually use aliases by leveraging the raw source of, or, of some things. So by doing this, you can totally eliminate what you don't need, which is a pretty cool feature, in my, in my opinion, even though the whole library that we, that we are overriding is around like seven kilobytes or something like this. So that wasn't that much of an improvement, but I could see value in this in, in, in some use cases. So we are basically focusing very much or, or, or making a simple API on making performance friendly and on making it hackable. And I'm really proud of what we have achieved. And I think the clean architecture, the architecture that is actually enabling you to iterate, to build new features in in a way that is actually pluggable. So it's more or less like Webpack is built. So Webpack itself is a very small library based on Tappable plugin system, which is hugely extendable and which is enabling you to actually add any functionality you can think about. So this is my ideal architecture of most of the systems that that I want to build. Something that is really simple at the baseline, but also really extendable and is enabling you to write various plugins that are extending the the base functionality. And and I think this is what we have made. And I'm also a big fan of, you know, Vue.js declarative approach. So you don't need to actually focus that much on implementation details because E-commerce is not something new, and most of the pages are actually doing more or less the same. Sometimes they require a little bit more data. Sometimes they require a little bit less data. But basically, we know what is needed. And even though we know what is needed, we are still writing a lot of code to achieve the same thing. So we were able to actually put all of that uh, behind a declarative API of like a single function or two functions. So this is also something I'm really proud of, that, that, that we managed to make e-commerce framework that is declarative and is not painful. And it's also in pair with Vue.js approach to, to programming, because I think it's also pretty important when you're choosing a framework, you're also opting in for, for some certain way of solving problems. And so when you're trying to build your software and design your APIs against this way, it will never be right because it it would be counterintuitive for people that are familiar with this framework. And when you manage to to write it in a way that's intuitive for such people, so you're utilizing best practices from known libraries like Vux or stuff like that, then it's bananas and the the learning curve is, is, is really, really fast. So this is what I'm proud of. So no particular features, but overall architecture which we're thinking about for these few years. So, you know, we are debating every day. And for every small piece in Vue Storefront, we probably had like 10 or 20 arguments how to do this right over these few years. We, we have a huge baggage of experience with that. And we, we knew exactly how we want to do this. At least we thought we, do, we did, because we had, we had this privilege of making Vue Storefront next together with clients. So clients actually were paying for, for, for creating this because they were very excited about this and they really liked Vistorefront One. So they put a lot of trust in us and they decided to, to finance it. So we were also able to challenge these APIs with multiple platforms, but also with multiple use cases. So initially we thought we figured all that out and 
after I think like four or five months of development, actually like I think the, the initial idea hasn't changed, but all the details have changed. Yeah, that would be it. Awesome. And and I definitely agree with the, all of the, the changes that are coming to make the developer experience better and just improve the API. It does that does feel like an accomplishment worth being proud about. So congratulations to the to you guys. Yeah, thanks. I think it's it's still a little bit early to, to congratulate. Even though I'm proud personally, my experience has shown that I I could love something, I could think that something is a perfect idea, then client comes and they say, okay, so how can I do this? And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I totally haven't thought about using it in that way. So yeah, that's that's a major improvement. And I have a feeling that people will like this. They, they're already liking it, but let's wait with, with congratulations. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll hold off then. One, one question I do have, you, you started out, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started out on this project as a junior developer, correct? Mm-hmm. And it was you and one other person who I think you said was your boss, correct? Yes, yes, Piotr Karvatka. Right. So from, from the start of this three years ago to now, at, at some point, you had to say, okay, this is what we wanted to build. We are ready to release it to the world. We've reached our minimum viable product. How did, how did you know what that point was? Because that, there's a lot of projects, my own side projects included, that kind of just sit in that state of, if I could just get these few more features done, it would be ready. And they just don't progress enough. How, do, how did you decide this is the minimum for, for version one to get it out the door? Yeah, so like... I think it depends when when you are releasing something that haven't got any, any any community already and that people won't pick and won't judge at the beginning. So actually, when when you're not React or something like that, I think you should release as early as possible. So it's it's kind of like against a common sense because a common sense would say that you should release when it's ready, but we released actually like. We opened our GitHub from the first commit, and it was open for contributions for the first commit. And this is actually what made Vue Storefront so good, and this is actually what helped us to to get such traction. For 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 Vue Storefront next, we also like opened the repo for external contributors before it was ready. So at at the moment where the base functionality was working, like very base functionality, so we're more or less sure that the architecture will remain the same. We published it because we wanted to collect feedback as soon as possible. Because as I said previously, like you could think about many use cases. You could think that you figure out the best possible architecture, you figure out the best possible APIs, etc. You can spend like five years on polishing it and finally releasing it without any bugs with 100% test coverage uh, and end test, everything, like all check marks checked. And then the client comes, asks you how to do this, and you're like, oh, fuck. So my mindset is like, you should release as soon as possible, but you should be very open with the fact that this is a beta or this is not something production ready. And actually, like the first I'd say production-ready version we did was 0.3, and we are releasing a new version, I think, each month. Each month. So that was after three months of development. And there was a shop after this three months of development that actually made it to production. I'm not sure if it's still online. It, it was gogetgold.com. <clears throat> and I think it's still on version 0.3, even though the current version is 1.13, 1, 1. 1.12. You know, if, if you release early, I think you could be confident that what you're releasing will meet the expectations. But also you need to be very cautious with, with, with releasing it. Like for Vue 3, for example, I think that they also did a really good job. So they were holding off and doing everything in shadows until the moment where they were more or less sure that, you know, the, the whole concept won't change and it's, it's safe to show it to people to let them judge if it's good or not. So they haven't done it too early, but they also haven't done it when it was ready. So I, I think as long at, at the moment when you have something that you're able to show to people and ask them for opinion, this is the right moment to release. So not when it's, it's ready, but when you are ready for the feedback. 
That makes sense. And I, I like that approach of when you're ready for feedback as opposed to saying, okay, it's done. Now come and use my amazing library. I think, I yeah, think that exactly. helps with uh, building the community around it, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, when, when you have a good idea, I think there, there's there's no reason to wait with, with it. Like the quality of first version of this storefront was far from being good. We had no idea how to write such, such software, but also people came to us and it wasn't an issue for them at all. You know, now when I'm an experienced developer, I know how many mistakes we did. And like in theory right now, for me, all of them would be deal breakers, but that was a software that was solving a real problem. So when you're solving a real problem that really like the quality or the things that you think are important, like, you know, test coverage, or if, if, if you're using the right name conventions or if your code is organized in a nice way, those are all the secondary things. You can, you can fix them later, but if you have a good idea, you should, you should just push it to the, to the GitHub or wherever and, and show to people. This, this is what we have done. And I can confidently say that if we haven't done this, we, we wouldn't be there because all the competition would release their products already and they will become an industry standard. And right now we are the industry standard just because we started very openly. We started very early and we didn't give a shit about, you know, being production ready. We just showed what we have to the community and it was up to them to judge if, if we're production ready or not. Also, we released version 1.0 very early, even though we knew that application has a lot of bugs. But in, in, like it's really hard to ship application without bugs. We decided that, okay, we're releasing version 1.0, not because it's, it works perfectly, but because it's dependable and you can fix the bugs by yourself. And it's also much easier to actually sell it when something is 1.0. But that was like, I'd say, secondary reason. And I'm, I'm curious, how did, since the storefront was a community-driven project to an extent where you were getting that feedback, you were having people using it as you were in development and still in development for uh, the next version. How did, how did you build that community? What did you do to reach out to developers and say, hey, we have this thing, come join us? So first of all, like we started to, we, we built it to solve our own problems. So the monetization of the product wasn't a priority and we haven't got a serious idea on how to monetize it, I think, till, till the beginning of this year. So two and a half years, something like this. So I think that's an important factor that you're not focusing on making money out of something too early. We just started to, to code on GitHub. And of course, like we were solving our own problems, but Divante is, is a huge e-commerce agency and other agencies had very similar issues. So when we started to write to CTOs uh, and other developers from other agencies, they really liked what we were doing because they had similar problems and they wanted to contribute to actually make it available faster so they can use it and they can solve their problems. So this is how it all started. So first we were actually trying to, to grab people from other agencies to, to validate it, to make them excited. And the beginning wasn't very easy, but at some point I think after one or two months, when we had actually something working, so we had this happy path, so we can enter the website, you can add to the cart, and then you can place the order. Then people saw that something like this is possible and it's working, and they started joining. And you know, after two and a, two and a half years, we have more than 80 agencies being our partners, more than 3,000 developers in the community, and we're fifth fifth biggest e-commerce project on GitHub, bigger even than PrestaShop or WooCommerce in, ter in terms of uh, traffic and, and GitHub stars. So all of, the, all of that happened just because we were focusing on the community first. So the first step, I, as I said, was like pinging people from, from other agencies. The second step was actually building it together. So we thought that it would be nice to actually make a hackathon. We start from hackathon. So the first hackathon happened in Divanta. I think there was like 20 people and some of them came from other cities in Poland. So that, 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 that was pretty excited. And we saw that people really liked this and we were able to ship a lot of features during this hackathon. So after that, we started to ask partners if they want to organize these hackathons. And after some of hackathons, actually the partners themselves were asking us that they want to organize a hackathon. So, so someone from the core team were flying there. 
and making a quick workshop and introduction and then helping people. And actually it was really successful. Like I think we had more than 20 hackathons in 2018 and 19. So actually at least a hackathon a month. So that, that was a lot all over the Europe, one in the New York. And, you know, in each of them, there was at least 10, sometimes 20, sometimes 30 developers, most of them new to view storefront. So this is how you're actually building local communities. At some point or so, the partner agencies started to have talks during this hackathon. So at, that was actually a whole day hackathon slash meetup. So, you know, the community itself was really engaged into the product, into the development, into the growth. And I think that was the most important factor. You need, you need to be aware that e-commerce industry is very corporate. So there is not that much open source in it. I think Magento was the only platform that successfully managed to have uh, an open source community. That is now being ruined uh, after the acquisition of Adobe by, by Adobe. But apart from that, there, were, there was hardly no community. And also front-end developers weren't that much important, I think, for those platforms because of the reason I said at the beginning. So it was, it was a good mix of being open, of uh, willingness to build this community, to actually be everywhere, but also solving the problem. Because, you know, you, you can try really hard, but if you're not solving the real problem, then, then, then it's pretty hard to, to build this community. That's awesome. So that was... Yeah, that that was the beginning of building community. And, you know, after after you have a certain amount of people in the community that are excited and if you're managing it in a good way, so you're open with the people, because actually, you know, at some point when you have a huge community, you're starting to build this not for yourself, but also, but, but, but mostly for this community, because this is what is driving the software. And then you can choose two ways. You can be, you know, some kind the communication could, could go in two ways. So the first way could be like, we are deciding together. So everything goes through RFCs, or at least we are ask, asking on Slack, asking for feedback. We are sending some emails. Basically, we are accepting external PRs with some ideas. Or the second way, you are deciding on roadmap, you're deciding how everything should be done. And people can basically sometimes pick some issue and, and, and contribute. So we chose the first way. And I'm not saying this is the best way because, you know, we, we, after three years, we ended up rewriting Vistorefront. Even though right now, I think it's, it's pretty polished and it's really stable. And this is a really good software at this point. But also the, the front-end landscape has changed and the way how we are writing the applications has changed during these three years. So we need to catch up to have the best possible developer experience. So going back, going back to what I was talking about, this is not the best approach. But this is from, from the building software perspective, but this is definitely the best approach from the building community perspective. And I think that was one of the most important factors that we're open. We are not thinking about monetizing it. Also, we have MIT license, which is, I think, the license that is enabling people to do actually everything with this software. So they, they, they were not feeling like they are doing it for someone else, like for Devanta, the agency. But they actually can you know, always take this software. They can use it in any way they want. Many people from the community were contributing really hard because they wanted to use Vistorefront in their own businesses, like some SaaS platforms, for example, or you know, as an agency. So that were the main factors that actually enabled us to, to build a huge community. Awesome. And yeah, I, I mean, I, from my perspective, if I was going to be building an open source project, I'd I'd take it the same way and try to build up the community as much as possible. So you can also have the extra perspectives and the extra uh, expertise that you might not have as the, the main developers. Yes, exactly. And, you know, at that time, it was pretty hard for us to enter VJS community because we didn't know anyone. And the first conference we came to, VJS Amsterdam, I think, together with my boss, we didn't know anyone. And, you know, it was really hard to connect to, to people we, we spotted even you uh, somewhere and, you know, we, just, we tried to show him this storefront, but, you know, he was really busy. Everyone wanted something from here. So he was like, oh, nice. And just this. And, you know, after this conference, I decided I, I would like to speak on such conferences to show the project, to, to actually know the community better. And now when I know more people and now when I, you know, 
feel comfortable with, within this community. It's much easier to, to build this community from scratch. So for Storefront UI, for Storefront UI, I think we, we, we were building this community from scratch and there was no clear transition like from the Storefront community to Storefront UI community, because even though those two projects were complementary, they were addressing more or less different types of developers at that time. So with Storefront UI, it was much easier because, you know, my, like, I was pretty recognizable in, in a VGS community because I was speaking at a lot of events. I was, I was basically pretty active. So it was much easier for me to actually reach to some people to tell about the project, to ask some friends from the community that I already knew if they want to join. And they also had their contacts. They also had their followers. So, you know, if you know people within the community and if you're building something exciting that they can join, it's, I think it's kind of like growth hacking of building community. So of course, like, I think this is pretty obvious, of course, but like knowing people really, really helps to, to actually promote it, what you're doing and to validate it faster and also to have interest from like some podcasts or actually influential people. Because, you know, when you're building open source, open source is a mix of, you know, project management, coding, but also marketing. And you can't be successful if you don't do the marketing right. Because obviously, like if you're building a great tool, people will use it and will be happy with that. But if you can't uh, promote it right, you, you will end up with a very small code base, which will be a, ver a huge, uh, huge loss for your project because, you know, you have built something amazing. And to make it a standard or to, 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 to make it actually use, used by many people, you need to reach to these people. So you need some marketing skills. Yeah. So that's, like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that, you know, there are two approaches. You, you, you can do this from scratch when you don't know anyone. And when you actually have friends in the community, you, you can ask friends to share it. You can, you can ask friends to join. And that really helps to, you know, to, to quickly validate the project and also to have very, very good developers on board. Like for Storefront UI, I, I was just asking on Twitter. I was also asking some people I know to join. So Maya has joined and Don Nico has joined. Also, other people from not 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 known that much in the community, but also very helpful. Uh, so we, we we had Eddie, who was kind of like a master of automation. He's a really, really good developer. So if 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 you know people, it's just much easier. But it it doesn't mean that if you're a developer from nowhere and you don't know anyone, and if you build a great tool, it can't be popular. It just takes a little bit more time. With Storefront UI, we actually made it pretty popular within like half a year, of course, for the niche that, that, that we are building it for. And for this Storefront, it took us, I think, around like two, two and a half years to reach the point where we are more or less recognizable. So th that's the difference between like building something from scratch when you don't know anyone and building something when you're already a part of the community. That's some great advice. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Yeah, I, I learned it in a, in a very uh, pleasurable way, I'd say. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you today, Philip. Yeah, I have the same feeling. It was great talking with you. And I really hope we'll be able to do this again. Maybe not, not even in a podcast, but someday. I definitely agree. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. So at this point, we'll move into picks. And for those new to the show, picks are just things that we like that we want to share. doesn't have to be tech-related. So Philip, you just spent a good chunk of time talking. I'll go first and then I'll let you uh, share your pick if that's all right. Yeah, I'm curious. So my my first pick, I, I realized we were just talking about how Vuex is not necessarily required anymore with the View Composition API, but I have recently been playing with Vuex ORM. For those who don't know, it's a, a library that allows for kind of treating your Vuex store as a local database on the client. You're able to just insert objects into into different tables essentially they're broken out by entities it helps manage if you have nested 
items. So if you have a user with a list of posts, it'll break out the posts into its own list. And then you can reference the posts directly. It's, it's pretty nice. But specifically, my pick today is a plugin for it that adds Axios into the plugin itself. So the, the example they give on the front page is if you have a user and you need to go and fetch the list of users from your API, you can do user.api.get and the URL. It will then reach out using Axios, grab that data, and then store it in Vuex for you. So with a single command, you can do a whole bunch of functionality. And it's really extensible. I've been working on a side project that has something similar, but I need to be updating a company list and the jobs associated to them and the employees at that company and how they all relate together. It's, it's been really nice to work with. So that's my first one, Vuex ORM plugin for Axios. The second pick I have today is a children's book. It is called Frindle by Andrew Clements. Uh, I read this myself as a kid and recently I've been listening to it as an audiobook with my four-year-old and she absolutely loves it. It follows a fifth grader who decides to invent a new word for a pen, uh, all based on the concept from his language arts teacher that words have meaning because we say they do. So it's, it's a pretty cool adventure of how this fifth grader invents a word that eventually becomes pretty popular. Those are my two picks. Philip, so the, let you... the first one, the first one I knew knew about. The second one I need to check. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, it's so... it's not that long a book. I just got it as an audiobook so we can listen to it together and talk at the same time as it's going. It's been pretty nice. Cool, nice. I, I will definitely check that once I have some free time for that. So yeah, I, I think I, I will be a little bit boring here because my picks are are work related. But as I'm right now changing a little bit my responsibilities. So from the development to more like a development management or something like this, I found it was really challenging because it's not actually a promotion. It's more like totally changing your career. And it, it's sometimes even useless. Like your previous, your previous knowledge is sometimes useless. So you need to learn a lot from scratch. And you think that you know a lot because you participated in all this management stuff. But the reality is that you only learn how to act, but you haven't learned actually all the behind the scenes, like why people are acting like this or how to be a good leader and how to be on the other side. So it's very easy to actually get tempted by all these coaches and I'd say motivational speakers that are telling you that you need to work as hard as possible. You know, you need to squeeze everything from yourself. Work-life balance is overrated, etc. And for like for, for a pretty long time, I thought it's like that. So I, you know, I need I need to build a culture and I need to actually make people confident with working overtime, and I need to make myself comfortable with it. And the reality is, is that it's completely the opposite. So if you're working overtime, it's usually because you're not working smart. So my picks would be two books, actually, from David Heinmeier Hanson. The, the first one is Rework, which is like totally amazing. So this book is actually telling you how to run a company that is driven by common sense, not by hype or the way that we are creating companies right now. So every company right now needs to be backed by a huge VC. Every company right now needs to scale to be as big as possible. Every company is meant to, you know, to be a unicorn, etc. And it's, it's, it's very easy to, you know, to go with this narration, even though this is, this is not actually the meaning of a successful company. And this book really helped me to realize it and also helped me to actually take a good actions, to be confident with what I am doing, but also to be productive and not overworking. So to maintain this work-life balance. So I think this is not only for the entrepreneurs, but for everyone. This book is really great. So the, the book is called Rework. And he recently also wrote a book, It Doesn't Need to Be Crazy at Work, which focuses much more on like getting things done without sacrificing your work-life balance, so actually your private life. And both of them, I think, are complementary to each other. So the first one will 
teach you how to think healthy about your business and the sec or the business actually overall. And the sec second one will teach you how to treat yourself and how not to overwork, but and feel good with this because actually we are feeling bad if we are not overworking right now, which I think is kind of like a huge, huge problem for almost everyone in, a, in, in, in any country right now. So the books like this are really needed to retain a mental health. And I really, really suggest everyone to, to read them. I will add my voice to It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. I have listened to that one as an audiobook a few times. It is excellent. I haven't listened to Rework yet, so I'm going to check that one out next. Yeah, definitely, definitely you should. I think it's, it's a bestseller as well. And I think at that time, it was the, the most popular book of this guy. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check this out. All right. Thank you again, Philip, for joining us. Is there a way that people can reach out to you if they have any questions or just want to follow up on any of the topics we discussed? Yeah, sure. So like my DMs on my Twitter are, are open. So my handle is Phil Rakowski. Uh, I'm posting mostly about view free, view storefront, view performance. So if this is something that is interesting to you, you, you can follow me or, and my DMs are, are open. So if you don't want to follow me, but just, just want to ask me something, feel free. Awesome. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I know I did. This one was great. If you'd like to listen to other episodes of Views on View, you can find us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can follow us as well on Twitter at Views on View, or you can reach out to me at Yagabush. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes as well. Hope you have a good day and see you next week. Thanks you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.